To get more out of this podcast, head over to Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service where you can get more episodes ad-free and earlier than everybody else, plus bonus content and exclusive series by myself and more than 130 other top-tier educational creators, many of whom I've interviewed on this podcast. You can sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe. You can sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe. It not only helps support the podcast, it furthers our mission of building a platform that focuses on content that matters. This video is supported by Brilliant. Told you there was going to be another one. So last month I did a video about uh, the Victorian era and how it was utter insanity. And uh, I wasn't really sure how it was going to do as a bit of a departure for this channel. Just a little rabbit hole that I had fallen down that I thought was really interesting. I didn't know if anybody else would care about it. But uh, yeah, it turns out it, it, it did pretty well. Turns out you guys are freaks too. But like I said in this video, there was actually a ton of stuff that I cut out of that video and saved for yet another video, which is kind of unfortunate because the stuff that I cut out is actually some of the more salacious stuff I ran across. Because this focuses mostly on the health and beauty fads that the Victorians got into, and yeah, if you think that the way they decorated their homes was crazy, just wait till you see what they did with their own bodies. One of the biggest takeaways from the last video was that the Victorian era was a period of transition, where old ways collided with new ways to produce a very interesting time. And one of the places where that becomes the most obvious is in their understanding of disease. You know, in some ways they were improving their knowledge by leaps and bounds, but with new knowledge requires an understanding of how to implement that knowledge, which they did not have. At all. And because of that, number one, their medicine was completely insane. Have you ever heard anybody say that they know just enough about something to be dangerous? Yeah, that was the entire medical field during the Victorian era. I talked about this a little bit in my video about John Harvey Kellogg, which is definitely worth a watch if you haven't seen it. But yeah, medicine in the Victorian age, the late 1800s or so, was very much a throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks approach. Yeah, that's the one where I talk about the doctor that had a cure for male infertility where he implanted goat testicles into guys' scrotums. It's a real thing that happened. So the germ theory of medicine was pretty much brand new, but they still didn't really have ways of combating it. Um, antibiotics were still quite a ways off. But they had figured out how to extract drugs from plants that, that makes you feel better. So, so they did that. A lot. And from that you get things like cocaine toothache drops, which you could buy over the counter. Cocaine was actually in a lot of stuff back then. Again, did a whole video on that. I feel like I'm gonna reference a lot of my old videos <laughs> in this. I, I seem to go back to this well quite a bit because they were insane. It was an insane time period. And one of the most popular items of the day for parents anyway was Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup. It was something that they gave to kids who couldn't sleep or were teething. And the reason it was so popular is because it worked. Within a few minutes of giving this to a kid, they were calm and quiet, laid out. It was, it was like a miracle. I, I'm sorry, did I say miracle? <laughs> I meant morphine. It was morphine. Yeah, you know how in Saving Private Ryan, when the medic knew that a soldier wasn't going to make it, he would basically euthanize him by injecting a bunch of morphine into him? Yeah, it was, it was that. For kids. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little, but it was morphine! Now, similarly, if you're a lady of the day and you're dealing with painful menstrual cramps and whatnot, the Pond's Tampon Company has just the thing for you, because they dip their tampons in opium and belladonna extract. Belladonna, also known as Deadly Nightshade because it's poisonous. But it does cause muscles to relax, so the opium would get rid of the pain and the belladonna would cause the muscles to stop cramping. So yeah, I mean, 
<laughs> it was almost a good idea. Actually, I'm sure it worked wonders in the short term, but for the long term, I mean... Well, there's a reason you don't see them on the shelves today. Now, one thing that Victorian doctors were really into at the time was phrenology, which was the idea that the shape of your head determined what kind of person you were and what kind of health you had. They had maps of the human head with various areas dedicated to different personality traits, and it was thought if your skull had bumps along those spots, then it was an indicator of what kind of person you were. This was especially used to determine criminality. It was thought that they could tell by the shape of your skull whether you had inherent criminal traits, and they would actually use this to put some people in asylums. In fact, the guy who invented mugshots first started doing it as a way to sort of figure out certain facial characteristics that were common amongst criminals. The idea being that if you could figure out these common traits, then police could, you know, arrest people before they commit crimes. It was only later that they realized that it was helpful in identifying repeat offenders, so they kept doing it. And, as I've talked about before, body snatching was big at the time. Yet donating your body to science wasn't really a thing back then, so medical schools kind of relied on, on grave robbers to go and dig people out of graves that were fresh in the ground. Which is why you sometimes see old graves with like iron bars around them. It wasn't to, to prevent vampires from coming up, or zombies as some people say. It was to keep grave robbers from getting into the graves. But perhaps the craziest health fad occurred right at the end of the Victorian age when radioactivity was discovered in 1896. They discovered what it was, but they didn't know that it caused cancer. And the way they found out that it caused cancer was because they put it in everything. You know, they saw this natural energy coming out of rocks, so surely if you put that in your body, it would give you vim and vega. So yeah, they put radium in makeup, thorium in toothpaste. Uh, you could take radium in pills. You could drink it in a drink called Radithor. And if you want a real kick out of it, you can drink it out of a uranium glass. Yeah, girls working with radium in factories started getting sick, the famous radium girls I've talked about before. And people that were drinking that Radithor began to notice that it was starting to eat through their jaw bones. And in the case of amateur golfer Eben Byers, his jaw fell off. This is an actual guy who drank three bottles of Radithor a day for years probably wasn't the glow he was going for. Now this was about a decade or so after the Victorian era would officially end, but Victorians, uh, they sacrificed a lot for beauty as well. Number two, they did some crazy stuff to look good. Today, if you were to come home to find your lady friend standing in front of you in a corset and lace stockings and high heels, friend, you better put that chalupa down because she's got other plans. In the Victorian age, that would have been Tuesday. Victorian women wore corsets all the time, sometimes even in their sleep, in an attempt to cinch their waist down as small as possible. Now this is still done today, don't get me wrong, there's whole communities of people that are into this kind of thing, and that's cool, do you? But the Victorians took it to extremes, they were obsessed with it. Like this is where that whole thing about women fainting because they get surprised came from, the idea being that they were so cinched in that their blood pressure would jump when you know, their heart rate increased and they would pass out. It's debated still whether or not this was really a thing, but it's talked about. But yeah, to the Victorians, there was nothing more important than having a tiny waist, which they would exaggerate by putting a bustle underneath their dress, more on crazy fashion stuff later. But yeah, something else that they were really into was, was having a doe-eyed look. Uh, to go along with their ant waists. And so what they would do to create a doe-eyed look was going back to that old belladonna, they would put belladonna juice in their eyes. But I feel the need to reiterate that belladonna is poisonous and many women went blind doing this. They'd also apparently put lemon and orange juice in their eyes because they thought that the sting meant that it was, it was cleaning their eyes when it was actually the acid eating away at their corneas. They also really valued pale skin. 
uh, the whiter the better because that was associated with wealth because if you didn't have a lot of money and you had to work then you would probably be working outside the sun would beat down on you and darken your skin but if you were wealthy you didn't have to work you could just you know sit on the couch in your living room eating bonbons with your pale ass so soaps often promised to whiten your skin they would use white makeup but if you were really dedicated to that pale life you'd eat arsenic complexion wafers Yes, arsenic. The thing that wound up in their wallpapers I talked about in the last video killed thousands of them. Well, they also openly consumed it in arsenic complexion wafers. The idea being that in low doses, arsenic can limit your body's ability to produce red blood cells. You know, like a dying person. But less red blood cells under the skin meant paler skin because we all know anemia is the sexiest disease. These extreme beauty hacks were of course mostly aimed at women, but if you feel sorry for the women of the age right now, just wait. It gets worse. Number three, women had it rough. Okay, so I talked a second ago about the corset craze of the Victorian era. It turns out that's actually a pretty good metaphor because women were pretty squeezed for options during that day. I'm sure it's a surprise to nobody to know that the women of the Victorian era had fewer rights than they do today, but just to give an idea of how controlled they were, consider Annette Kellerman. She was an Australian actress who got arrested in the early 1900s for going to a beach in an inappropriately revealing outfit. Oh my god, I'm, not sh I'm sorry. I, I didn't realize that was... I hope this doesn't get demonetized. But seriously, women in the Victorian era were expected to be in full skirts and pantaloons at the beach, and you could only remove the skirt when you were in waist-up water, and then you had to put it back on before you got out, and in the meantime, I guess you just held on to it? But in fact, many beaches provided little changing rooms on wheels that they called bathing machines, where you'd get in on the beach fully dressed, they'd wheel you out into the water, you would change clothes on the way, and then you could exit on the other side and swim in privacy. Which is especially funny when you consider that most of the beaches were segregated by gender, like men weren't even allowed on the same beach as the women, whatever. But sexually, they were crazy repressed back then, both the men and the women, but especially the women. Like, sex was only supposed to be for procreation. Uh, even for married couples, you were not supposed to enjoy it. It was considered unseemly and whorish for a woman to enjoy sex, even with her husband. Uh, in fact, they, they, they believed that women couldn't have orgasms. And pretty much any kind of female unhappiness was labeled hysteria. And the doctors had a way of relieving this hysteria. It was called a pelvic massage. Again, I covered this in a, in a previous video, but a pelvic massage was where a doctor would have a woman lay down and then he would uh, manipulate her downstairs with his hand until she had a release of hysteria. Not an orgasm. We all know they can't have orgasms. No, it was a release of hysteria. Yeah, how bad was it for women back in the Victorian days? Um, an orgasm was a medical procedure. That's how bad it was. There was also the small problem that many women back in the day were just considered property to their husbands or their fathers. In fact, men who wanted a divorce but couldn't afford a divorce had the option of selling their wives. And this was actually done at a public auction, just like livestock, and whoever it is that won this auction got to have this wife. This was now his wife, and she had no choice in the matter. This was actually documented in the Thomas Hardy novel, The Mayor of Casterbridge. And if you're really ready to have your mind blown, this wasn't that long ago. The last recorded case of this was in Leeds in 1913. There are people alive today that were around when it was legal to sell your wife. But I don't know, maybe as a way to sort of deal with that whole situation, women of Victorian days indulged in some pretty crazy fashion. There's the aforementioned corset and tiny waist craze that I was talking about, but yeah, they would also include a bustle. The bustle was a little wire 
floof that they would put right above their butt that would cause the dress to kind of flare out behind them. Kind of made it look like they just farted. It served other purposes. It kept the tips of the dress off the ground. And I guess depending on how you look at it, it could be seen as an act of modesty, like it's hiding their actual figure or the exact opposite. It's supposed to be like a, you know, Victorian dump truck. But believe it or not, this was a minimized version of something that came before it. Really popular in the 1850s to 1870s, women wore these steel cages under their dresses called crinolines that flared the dress out up to six feet wide. It was a ridiculous fashion and it was criticized at the time as well, but its merits are debated. Some women enjoyed wearing them because it, it kept their legs cooler with all the heavy material lifted off of them. It kind of created this space underneath there. That meant they could move their legs around a little easier, maybe walk around a bit more. And the wide dresses gave them more personal space and kept the creepers off at the parties. But on the other side, they were big and bulky and put women in literal cages. But the worst thing was, say it with me, they killed a lot of people. Crinolines caught fire constantly. Homes at the time were heated and lit by fireplaces and candles, and you can imagine trying to navigate around a space like that with a giant dress that flares out that wide and knocking stuff over. And the dress, by the way, was made of very flammable material. In fact, it's estimated around 3,000 women died every year from dress fires. On a lighter note, one popular trend in the 1800s was for women to wear hats with birds on them. And I don't mean patterns of birds, I mean an actual dead bird. And jewelry made out of insects was popular for a while too, especially beetles. But one last thing about women in the Victorian age, they did find one other way to sort of rebel against the system and everything that was going on. And I did not see this coming before I found it when I was doing research for this, but nipple rings were popular. Yeah, they called them bosom rings and they started in Paris and kind of made their way around as a little sneaky act of rebellion. But it was mostly popular amongst the aristocracy and the, the wealthier women because they knew that if somehow they got caught, they wouldn't be punished like people in the lower classes would. On that note, let's go from nipple rings to haircuts. Number four, barbershop quartets got started for horrifying reasons. Okay, so barbershop quartets, as we think of them today with the outfits and the, the harmonies and all that, that actually got started after the Victorian era, um, mostly coming from African-American slave songs and harmonies and whatnot. But the origin of a barbershop quartet did kind of get its start in the Victorian days. And the reason that this got started is <laughs> amazing. So many of you may know that way back in the day, barbers were a lot more than just people who cut hair. They were kind of like the town surgeons. In fact, they were called barber surgeons and what separated them from doctors, doctors would, you know, determine what a disease was and, and offer poultices and herbs to take, you know, that kind of thing. But if anything needed to be opened up or any blood needed to come out, that's what the barber surgeon did. Steve Martin fans might remember the Saturday Night Live sketch, Theodoric Barber of York. That's, that's kind of how it was. You know, medicine is not an exact science, but we're learning all the time. Why, why just 50 years ago, we would have thought your daughter's illness was brought on by demonic possession or witchcraft. <laughs> but nowadays, we know that Isabel is suffering from an imbalance of bodily humors, perhaps caused by a toad or a small dwarf living in her stomach. <laughs> Eventually, medical knowledge advanced to the point where surgeons kind of became their own thing. But even up into the Victorian days, barbers did things like bloodlettings and, and set bones that had been broken and even did some minor dentistry. I guess you could say they were like the dock in the box of their day, like instead of going to the emergency room, going to like an urgent care facility. But this was also, as I've talked about in a previous video, a time before anesthetic. So getting a tooth pulled or getting a bone set was an incredibly painful experience. An experience which would often lead to screaming. And you know what's bad for business? The sound of somebody screaming in pain from inside your business. 
So barbers would encourage those that were waiting their turn to play music. They would put instruments in the waiting room for them to, to play, and, and they would sing along with like call and response songs and shanties and whatnot. And if they could afford it, they would hire groups of people to stand outside of their shops to sing for the passersby to cover up the sound of the screaming from the inside. And this is where barbershop quartets were born. And number five, they ate mummies. Yeah, there's this factoid going around, I've seen it here and there, that um, there's actually a shortage of Egyptian mummies in the world, that it's actually kind of rare to find them uh, these days, because the majority of Egyptian mummies that have ever been found have been eaten by Victorians. Uh, for the record, that is a wild exaggeration, but it's also not much of a lie. So again, the Victorian time was this weird mix of terrible new ideas and terrible old ideas. So while some people were drinking irradiated water and causing their jaws to fall off, uh, there was also this common belief going way, way back that ground up Egyptian mummies had medicinal properties. According to a 17th century physician, Dr. Robert James, mummies, or mummia as it was known, could serve as a blood thinner, painkiller, cough suppressant, anti-inflammatory, menstrual aid, and promotes wound healing. Yeah, uh, spoiler warning, uh, it does none of those things. So this falls into the category of medicinal cannibalism, and this goes back literally thousands of years. Way back in the day, it was believed that you would gain a person's strength by eating part of their body. In fact, when Roman gladiators were killed, people would often go down with scarves and soak up the blood and, and drink their blood to try to gain strength from it. And the mummy thing specifically, it's thought that it might have actually come from a bit of a misunderstanding or a mistranslation of the word bitumen. Bitumen, or bitumen, I've heard it pronounced both ways, it's, it's basically the same as asphalt. It's this pitchy, black, sticky goo that is made out of hydrocarbons the same way oil is, so it's very abundant in the Middle East. And it does have some medicinal properties. It's antibacterial, so you can put it on a wound and it'll prevent it from becoming infected. So bitumen has gone by different names over the years, but it was a 10th century Persian physician named Razaz that named it mumia after the word mum, which was uh, which is the word for wax because it was sticky. And that's where the term mummy came from because when Europeans first found these Egyptian mummies, they had this sort of black coating around them and they assumed that it was this mummia substance. And they were right and wrong about that. Um, earlier Egyptian mummies were actually covered with resin, which would get blackened and hardened over time. Now later mummies did actually use bitumen um, when it became more mainstream and, and it wasn't just royalty that was getting this done, but it was the more sort of commoner people that were being embalmed with bitumen, which uh, is kind of ironic because one of the reasons why people consumed Egyptian mummies in powdered form and everything, again, was because they thought that they were taking in their greatness because, because they thought they were all royalty, but the bitumen that they were actually getting was from the commoners. And they also used mummia in paint to create a color called mummy brown, which I guess is better than having arsenic in it. So while they didn't eat most of the mummies in the world, they did definitely consume some Egyptian mummies, but there was a bit of a just mummy craze that went on in the Victorian days. After Napoleon invaded Egypt in 1798, he brought some mummies back with him, and this sort of stirred everybody's imaginations, went through this big whole Egypt phase, Egyptomania is what it was called, and mummies from Egypt began to just flood the European continent for the next coming decades. And this led to mummy unwrapping parties. You know, that thing where you invite a whole bunch of people over and sip brandy while you desecrate the actual human body of a person? It was that kind of thing. But no, these were pretty much exactly what they sound like. Um, especially high-level aristocrats would have people over. They would maybe show off some of the trinkets and stuff that came from the tomb that they acquired. They would pass around drinks. And then the main event, they would bring the mummy out, they'd put it on the table and unwrap the mummy 
and eventually reveal this face that had not been seen for millennia. Some found this to be strangely beautiful, others were horrified by it. And it was also common to find um, jewelry and trinkets and stuff hidden in the bandages of, of these Egyptian mummies that was part of their funerary process. So they would take these little trinkets and just kind of hand them out as party favors that people could take home. And some people made whole careers out of this, like Thomas Pettigrew, who was a, a well-known surgeon who had so many of these mummy wrapping parties, had unwrapped so many mummies over his time that he actually became a bit of an expert in it. In fact, he wrote a book called The History of Egyptian Mummies in 1834 that went on to become a big hit. Although in his studies of these mummies, he took the opportunity to measure their skulls to try to prove that they were actually Caucasians and not Arabs or Africans, because... <sighs> of course he did. You mean somebody assuming that an ancient non-white civilization couldn't have possibly built great things? I'm glad nobody does that anymore. Egyptomania went on for a large part of the 1800s, but it did eventually begin to wane because the field of archaeology, first of all, it kind of became more regulated and, and uh, not such a free-for-all anymore. And, you know, people just kind of get used to it, you know? Seen one mummy, you've seen them all. But still, all over Europe and the United States for that matter, thousands of mummies have been unceremoniously displayed in museums and curiosity shops and sideshows, never having been returned to the tombs that they came from. But hey, at least they weren't eaten. So there's a lot more that I could add to this video, but I think you get the idea. You know, just like their engineering and, and scientific knowledge, their medical knowledge took huge leaps and bounds during the Victorian age. Like I talked about Jon Snow in the last video and how he was the guy who figured out that cholera was waterborne and kind of led to the germ theory of disease. Well, it turns out he was also one of the people who cracked anesthesiology. So for the first time in history, people could get surgeries done and not be in unbearable pain. And I don't think we can conceptualize what a big deal that is. I mean, yes, obviously it's less painful, but what that meant was back then people wouldn't get things done that needed to be done. Little minor surgeries that would be nothing today, thousands of people died from regularly back then. And maybe an even bigger thing is that surgeons could take their time to get everything right because there wasn't somebody screaming in pain while they were doing it. Like before anesthesia, a good surgeon was the one who did it the fastest. Like that's all that mattered. And the fastest surgeon of his day and I'm going to assume of all time, was a guy named Robert Liston. He was famous for being able to amputate a leg in less than five minutes. His record was 28 seconds. But before you cheer him on too much, he also performed the only surgery in history that had a 300% mortality rate. Yeah, he was doing a leg amputation and he was going so fast that he accidentally cut off two of his assistant's fingers and somebody watching got so horrified that they had a heart attack and died. And then later, both his assistant and the patient died of infection. So yeah, 300% mortality rate. So yeah, who else is happy to be alive today? Of course, one of the biggest discoveries of the Victorian age was how to harness and manipulate electricity. This is something that took humanity thousands of years to understand, but you could probably figure it out in one afternoon if you check out the Electricity and Magnetism course on Brilliant. Learn all about Maxwell's field equations, which kickstarted the electrical revolution, as well as Calhoun's law, Faraday's law, Gauss's law. There's a lot of laws, but don't worry, this isn't a legal course. Brilliant teaches you with exclusive animations and interactive puzzles that make it all simple and, more important, fun. 
By the time you're done, you'll have a whole new outlook on all the electrical gadgets you have around you and a new appreciation for the electricity that powers them. From there, you can check out Brilliant's other courses on everything from computer science to basic algebra to competition math, logic, scientific fundamentals, you name it. And if you haven't checked out Brilliant lately, there's a lot more to see with new courses being added all the time and more interactive puzzles to make understanding the concepts easier than ever before. And if you want to get a taste of what I'm talking about, they have free daily brain teasers and you can do the first section of any of their courses for free so you can see what they're all about. But if you do sign up for one of their premium subscriptions, it gives you access to all their courses and you're one of the first 200 people to do so, you can get 20% off if you go to brilliant.org slash Joe. It's just a great way to learn things. And like I said, they've been adding a lot of really cool stuff. So if you haven't checked it out in a while, now might be a good time to do it. So yeah, brilliant.org slash Joe. Links down in the description. Big thanks to Brilliant for supporting this video and a huge shout out to the Patreon supporters, the Answer Files that are helping to keep this channel going, keep the lights out around here, forming an awesome community and just being overall really nice people. Uh, I got some people I need to shout out real quick. Got us murder some names. We've got Desiree Gallo, Andrew Newton, Arv Svenning, Jordi Fitzgerald, Joe Coletti, Poe T. Wang, and, and Theodore Wilson, old friend coming back. Good to see you. Uh, if you would like to join them, get early access to videos, exclusive live streams, and just be a part of an awesome community, you can go to patreon.com slash answerswithjoe. Please do like and share this video if you liked it, and if this is your first time here, there's another one. It's just as good as this one, might even be better. It'll blow your mind. Google thinks you'll like it, they know a lot. Or you can check out any of the other videos that might come up that have my face on them. And if you enjoy them and you wanna see more, I invite you to subscribe. Come back with videos every Monday. All right, that's it for now. You guys go out there and have an eye-opening rest of the week. Stay safe. And I'll see you next Monday. Love you guys. Take care.